Our darkness falls as chills abound Just when you felt all safe and sound His heart is losing their bloody minds As their hard work turns on evil eyes Tis worse than nightmares, tis worse than fears As artists cry horrific tears Welcome to Art World Horror Stories <laughs> Welcome to Art World Horror Stories a podcast about the dangers of working in the arts, featuring real-life stories from the artists who survived to tell us their tale. Okay, art lovers, tis the season to say trick-or-treat. We are now officially in October, and this is one of my favorite times of the year. It's uh, the time of the year where wearing a costume doesn't freak people out. You know, I typically wear costumes and people say, what are you in a costume for? It's not Halloween. I'm like, hey, you know, I like costumes. Well, anyway, it's October and Halloween's coming. It's the season to look out for ghosts and ghouls and long leggedy beasties. I thought it would be a good time to launch a new segment that we're calling Art World Horror Stories. Yes, you heard it. Art World Horror Stories. Real life, scary stories of artists and art workers who have been terrified and perhaps emotionally scarred from some real-life true horror story that happened to them working in the arts. Could come from anywhere. Could come from artists, could come from gallerists, could come from art lovers. But we all have our story, don't we? We've been in the game for a long time. And after the years pile up, inevitably, we're going to have a few scary stories to tell. A few tales to tell as fair warnings to our fellow colleagues and those youngins, those hoppers coming up behind us in the art world. And so we need to, as they say, pay it forward, share the wisdoms, drop the knowledge and share our our world horror stories with the world so that people can go in eyes wide open. And don't get me wrong, some of these stories are done to us by other people who perhaps did or did not have the best of intentions. But sometimes we make mistakes that cause us problems and headaches and various horror stories. So our world horror stories is our time to come together and share these stories and see what we might learn from one another. This particular segment was inspired by an artist friend of mine, Logan Hicks, who you're going to hear from today. Logan was sharing a story with me about something that recently happened to him in our world. And believe me, it's a horror story. And I thought, boy, we got to share this with our audience. And I bet there are other artists out there who have stories to tell. So over the last few weeks, I've been collecting stories from many of you who have emailed me or called in or sent me your stories that I'm going to share over the next couple of weeks here in the month of October during our Art World Horror Story segment. Who knows? Maybe we'll spin this off into a separate podcast. I mean, I think that there's enough stories out there that we could probably warrant a whole nother kind of podcast called Art World Horror Stories, but we'll see. We've got the music for it. We came up with proprietary original exclusive theme music for Art World Horror Stories, which you'll hear in a minute. It's a collab between myself and Dan Ubik, host of The Conduit music podcast. Check that out. I wrote the lyrics, Dan wrote the music, produced it, 
And so Our World Horror Story has its own theme music here, people. So I think if we spin off a podcast, uh, that'd be cool because, you know, it could be its own thing. And, you know, it doesn't have to come from the visual arts. Any creative art medium can participate, whether you're a dancer, actor, musician, producer, engineer, writer, whatever. We all have horror stories to share, times that we can talk about that of wrongs done to us and wrongs that we might have done to ourselves due to negligence or naivete or ignorance. But Art World Horror Stories is absolutely an opportunity for us to warn others so that they might save themselves from these dangers, these evils of the art world. So without further ado, let's get into this new segment that we're calling Art World Horror Stories. And we're going to hear from our dear friend, the one and only, and believe me, if it can happen to him, it can happen to you because this guy's no chump and he's been in the game a long time and he's a brilliant artist and a even better human being. The one and only Logan Hicks is on the show today to talk about actually two horror stories that he has to share. So without further ado, let's hear our new theme music. Let's get into our brand new segment, Art World Horror Stories. Hold on to your seats, people. Get that white knuckle grip. And you may want to sleep with the lights on tonight because Art World Horror Stories are very real. Logan Hicks, welcome to the podcast. Please tell us your Art World Horror Story. Well, thank you for having me. As it turns out, I actually have two horror stories, and both of them I am in the middle of. So the, the first one I'll say is, if you remember a couple of years ago, there was this horrible meme going around of Salt Bay, a guy that was sprinkling salt on his forearm and letting it fall onto a steak. And after that, he opened a number of high-end steakhouses, New York, Miami, Texas, Beverly Hills, and so on, all around the world. And at one point, me and my friend Joey Rado got commissioned to do a, an original painting for a location in Miami, a location in Doha, and a location in New York. And we did that. You know, pay was decent. Then we didn't hear anything from them, but we kept seeing them open up more stores. We looked online. And we're like, wait, that's our art. And they were using the pattern that I had created and the graphic that Joe had created, and we're using it everywhere. So I approached my lawyer, said, hey, you know, they're using this illegally. He sent them a cease and desist. They ignored it and then opened up even more restaurants. Also started a spice line and used our art on it. And so this has been ongoing for about two years. We have gone back and forth. I'm not sure what the specific numbers are in terms of what's been offered, what's been discussed, but it could go on for another two months. It could go on for another two years, but that's one of the problems that you have when you're dealing with big giant corporations like that or multi-international corporations on top of that. And so that's my first one. And then the second one is one that I am literally in the thick of as we speak, but it started several years ago. In 2017, I believe, I got a piece of artwork back from uh, Station 16, which is located in Montreal, Canada. And when I got it back, I unrolled the canvas and I noticed that I was like, why is there a black border around my piece? I looked at it closer and they put gaff tape on the actual surface of my artwork. Only about a, about a half inch in, but like they cropped the image with gaff tape, and I lost my shit. But I managed, you know, because it was, it was fairly new, I managed to pull it off with relatively little flaking. I did sell it to a collector at a discounted price just to make sure. And I talked to them the next day and kind of gave them uh, an earful. And I said, "Look, from here on out, I need signed consignment forms before anything leaves my studio." 
need to have an agreement with you. Yeah, sure. Of course. No problem. There's a, a guy by the name of Adam who's the owner of it. And you know, I hadn't sent him any new work in a while. And finally, uh, had some stuff sent back and I put it back in storage. And then last year, I pulled out a big, giant four foot by six foot painting. I noticed they'd also put gaff tape on that. And this time, because I didn't catch it immediately, when I started taking off the gaff tape, it ripped the canvas and it also pulled out huge chunks of paint to where it couldn't be salvaged. And what I speculate is because they're up in Canada, they're using the metric system. We use the imperial system. So I'm willing to bet that they just didn't feel like having custom stretchers made. And they put it on the nearest stretcher that they could, which was too small. And when they put it on the stretcher that was too small, part of the painting falls over the side of the stretcher. And they don't want their collectors seeing artwork that's hanging off the side of the stretcher. So they just put black gaff tape to cover it up. So that was two pieces that, that they destroyed. And so after I saw the second one, I go, you know what? Just send me all of my shit back. We're done. And I wanted to see what it was like before I made any proclamations. And so they sent me the work back. Two of the pieces are in like plastic sleeves. I take a look and there's a big giant indent in the paper. As though if you were to take your nail and drag it across the paper, you know, it leaves like a giant crease. And it's on the exact same place on both of the pieces of paper. So clearly they were sitting on top of each other. Something hit it, dragged it, destroyed it. So unsellable. And then two other pieces were frames. And I thought it was weird because frames cost a lot of money. The paper size that I had was a standard size. They could have reused that frame again. And so I was like, you know, something's up. So I took the frame apart. Sure enough, like the paper that I used was an Arches 88, which has a deckled edge, which is kind of like a frayed edge. It has some thin bits and stuff like that. And when they adhered the paper to the mat, they used tape along the entire edge of it, which you're not supposed to do because take the tape off, tears the deckled edge. On top of that, they used tape that they shouldn't have used. So it ripped the paper. And so did that with both of them. And uh, those two pieces are destroyed. So total, it was about $30,000, $35,000 worth of work that they destroyed. Called them up, said, hey, it's kind of fucks. What happened? They go, oh, that, that was a framer we used to use, but we're not using them anymore. The framer we used to use, but I'll oversee everything from here on out. Hope we can stay in touch. No sorry. No, here's what happened. No, here, what can we do to make this right? It was just blame it on the framer. Hope we can stay in touch. So I um, picked up the phone, called my lawyer. We have a lawsuit against them currently. And because they refused to acknowledge the lawsuit, I started doing an online push and trying to get the word out as much as I can about how they treat artists, how they treat the work that's entrusted to them and their general business practices. And that's one of the many paths that led me back here to this podcast today. Well, first of all, Logan, we're sorry that you're going through this. This is such an avoidable thing, right? I mean, this didn't have yeah. to happen. You didn't have to be in this situation. No, you know, and I think most artists are understanding that, look, shit happens sometimes. And right. I think when any mistake happens that's not intentional, the first thing that you start off with is, I'm sorry, what can we do? But I got neither of those. Well, and as I was listening to the story, it happened once. You were willing to kind of, you know, you understand shit slide. happens. You're willing to forgive it. It's like, okay, one time, fine. But it's a kind of a, becoming a chronic kind of issue. And the fact that there doesn't seem to be much remorse or accepting responsibility, it's just making a bad situation worse. It's kind of absurd. I mean, I'm not overly OCD about stuff. 
Like I do understand that things happen and occasionally you get something back with a nick or a ding. But, you know, I started tallying up how much work they had sold them on versus how much work they destroyed. And uh, what it comes down to is I paid them to hold artwork of mine for a couple of years. They end up walking away with more money of mine than I do of theirs. And on any relationship, you should be walking away with the 50-50 at least. And so I don't understand the ego that comes in to think that you can destroy not one, not two, not three, but six pieces of work and just be like, oh, yeah, that wasn't us, man. And that's it. So a couple of the steps that I've started taking is uh, one, because they blocked me on social media because they don't want to talk to me. I had uh, asked for help for people that follow me on Instagram or on Facebook. I just said, hey, post on their account. Ask them, why did they destroy my work? Why won't they pay me for the work they destroyed? And uh, as of yesterday, they've shut down all the comments on their Facebook or on their uh, Instagram. Still not answering anyone, but I've had people tweet at them. I've had people call them. I've had people email them. And I just want to make sure that my presence is felt every day, every hour until I'm made whole for uh, the work that was destroyed. Yes. Yes, of course. Well, and by the way, that's power to the people and all that. I mean, it, and that's the power of social media, right? To be able to hold people accountable. You have so many fans and collectors and people that follow you. And the fact that they're rallying around you, circling the wagon, so to speak, that's the power, I guess, of the social media age we're living in, which is a good thing in all of this. But I mean, Logan, I mean, you and I have known each other a few years. So we go back. I mean, you've been an artist for decades now. I guess from the outside looking in, a lot of people might think, like, how could this happen to Logan Hicks? <laughs> you know, like, if it can happen to him, it can happen to me, right? Looking back on this, and we'll get back to the first horror story. You told us two horror stories. We'll get yeah. back to the first one, but we're focused on the second one. I mean, looking back on how you got here, what might you have done differently? What could you have done differently, if anything, to have avoided this from happening in the first place? Well, you know, I've tightened up my business practice quite a bit since I first started working with them. I mean, every artist has their own way of, of approaching things. For me, I tend to have a good following both in the U.S. and in Europe. So I've had pretty successful shows in Australia, Paris, London. So for me, I'm always trying to test out new markets. And so when the opportunity came to work with Station 16, it was a relatively untapped market for me. And I saw as a way of kind of dipping my toes in and sort of testing the market to see if there's something there. And so I didn't have high expectations. For me, like I have three main galleries that I work with. That's my primary source of income. After that, then come projects and murals. And then third are these sort of ancillary galleries like Station 16 that if they bring in a couple hundred bucks a year and it introduces my name to someone, then it's worth it for me as long as I'm not losing money. And so that's kind of what I started doing with, with Station. And, and they, they would sell on a piece here or there. It wasn't until I got the work back and then realized like, oh, they're not taking care of the work. And the one warning sign that I had that I should have listened to better was at one point, this artist duo goes by the name of 123 Clan had posted on Facebook about how Station 16 destroyed a bunch of their work and they weren't paying for it. And that post kind of got taken down about a week or two after that. In hindsight, I'm sure that seeing how Station 16 is working with me and seeing how they're trying to squash my voice, I'm pretty sure that they got to them and had them take down the post and say, oh, we'll probably work with you or whatever else. I don't know for a fact, but 
I should have listened to that and I should have scrutinized things a bit more. I thought after I discovered the first piece that was destroyed, that having a signed consignment form that clearly spelt out exactly what's expected, when who pays for this, who when the work comes back, what the length of the contract's for, how the work's returned, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, a contract's only as good as the lawyer that you can hire to enforce it. I mean, and so... In a sense, I mean, the consignment agreement, even though it is a legally binding thing, is more of a guideline unless you're willing to go to court and uh, enforce it. And, and I've been fortunate in the fact that I've been working with KG Law and they are amazing simply because they actually want to do the right things, not just collect the check. And he is my attorney, uh, Ilya and Andrew. They've done a great job for advising me on what's possible, what it should be what's possible and what the suggestion is of, of where we go on things. But um, in hindsight, I should have listened when the first time they damaged work. I should have contacted those artists and said, hey, what's going on? I'm working with them. What would you advise? And uh, I did. I won. You know, it's like Vegas. Everyone thinks they can beat the odds. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's not going to happen to me, right? Like, yeah, yeah exactly. No, I, I get that. Listen, I mean, in a perfect world, right? And we could trust you know, I'm reminded of that old uh, saying, you know, as, as horrible of a president as he was, you know, Ronald Reagan talking about trust, but verify. I mean, well, I guess in a perfect world, it'd be great to be able to go visit the gallery, right? That you as an artist, mm. you know, they're going to represent your work, see how they're working, see how they handle the art, see how, you know, to basically do a site visit, right? Like to understand, yeah. like in a perfect world, that'd be great. But of course, artists, you know, they're busy. Maybe it's expensive to go somewhere, whatever. You know, it'd be interesting, right, to do a site visit. Have you been to that gallery? Do you have you ever seen how they handle the artwork in the back of the house and and, and what their operation no, looks I, like? One of the great joys that I've had since I posted stuff is that I've been getting messages and emails from dozens of people that they have fucked over. People that have been associated with them in a business capacity, artists that have shown with them, people that are friends with them, and just being like, yeah, like one person said they had kind of had like an art storage area that they called um, where the art goes to die. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was basically like a fuck you closet where like we're not going to sell your shit, but we're not going to pay to send it back either. Again, this is a story that I, that I relayed to me, so it's not something I've ver- verified firsthand, but right. it would be in line with the, the ethos that they seem to have with dealing with artists. One other warning sign that they had that I neglected to mention was they were taking my work to different art fairs. And I think it was at Scope uh, a couple of years ago. They showed me and they sold a piece and I got it back and the numbers weren't right. I go, no, I should have been getting get paid this much. They go, oh, well, because we took it to an art fair, we take a higher percentage. And I go, no, you're never going to take more than 50% of my work. Well, that's how it is with all artists. They go, well, then don't take me to an art fair, but I need my 50%. And uh, they never took me to an art fair again, which is fine. I mean, I'd rather have the money or the art, but not uh, take a loss. In hindsight, that that was just kind of the entitlement that that gallery feels like like they were owed. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's fascinating to me how these things happen after the fact. Like, if you're a true professional, right, good business, a true professional, in theory anyway, is a good communicator, right? Like, you talk about these things ahead of time. You don't assume or after the fact, it's like, oh, well... I know our deal was 50-50, but I took you to the art fair. So now it's 60-40. No, no, no. You never told me that. We never agreed to that. We never discussed that. That was never disclosed. And I think also, you know, like I'm an eternal optimist. In spite of my gruff exterior, I'm actually an (laughs) eternal optimist. So I always feel like I can, 
Like, I can fix this. We can make this happen. We can turn this around. And so every problem that comes up, I think of solutions. But the thing that I didn't realize is that the problem is the gallery itself. It's not what's happening at the gallery. The problem is the gallery. And so there's no way to fix that. If there's not a mutual respect that exists between two people when doing business, one person's going to get screwed. And that's what happened to me. And one of the things I've, I've been getting quite a few messages too with like, fuck galleries. And I love galleries. I just don't like bad galleries. My gallery in New York, Dagley Teller, fucking love them. They sell yeah. stuff. They communicate with me frequently. They pay on time. We have a, a relationship that's friendship as well as business. It's exactly what I've always wanted in terms of working with a gallery. It's kind of like any relationship. Like when you're in a bad relationship, you don't realize how bad it is until you get out of it and get into a healthy one. Right. And as I start realizing just the approach that, that Station 16 had with me, I'm starting to realize how kind of toxic that was. I mean, you know, like I've heard of them there in Canada. I've heard of them paying artists in the U.S. and going, oh, no, we can't we can't pay you in uh, U.S. dollars. It has to be in Canadian, which I mean, because of the percentages or whatever, you end up yeah. losing money. And I'm like, right. that's bullshit. That's absolute <laughs> bullshit. We live, in, we live in an age where you can send a billion dollars, like, you know, in a half a second in like a hundred different currencies. You mean to tell me you can't figure out how to convert Canadian to U.S.? Well, and but this also falls into that category of like, that should be disclosed before the relationship ever starts. It's like, we pay you in yeah. Canadian dollars, not American dollars. Well, wait a minute. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, yeah, it is fascinating. And the ounce of prevention, you know, all that stuff, you know, and that's why we wanted to do this Art World Horror Stories kind of series, because hopefully... Other artists hearing these stories, they'll learn and be able to avoid similar problems in the future to be able to mitigate any risk that they might enter into. And here you are, Logan Hicks, after decades of experience. And if it can happen to you, it can happen to anyone. And if, if artists listening right now, I hope they're understanding that the lesson, one of the lessons in all of this is to clarify terms to the extent that you can clarify all the terms before you even begin working together, because it's these kinds of gotcha moments that really serve to sour that business relationship. And it's not ethical and it's avoidable if you can communicate. Right. And I also think that it's important to realize that like having contracts, you know, or if you're not going to have a contract, at least have an email. I mean, that's, yeah, I'm very opposed to telephone conversation. Like, for example, when in hindsight, when that first piece of work got damaged and I sent them an email, here's what happened, documenting it time when I got it, everything else to want them to know that I I inspected it less than like two hours preceding it, sent them an email. And the first thing they did was, uh, you know, can we have a phone call tomorrow? And so right off the bat, because they never call me, I'm like, that's odd. This is a pretty simple thing. If they fucked it up, just go, oh, we'll pay for it. We don't pay for it. We'll make an insurance claim, tough shit, like, you know, something. Yeah. So they were like, you know, let's jump on a call tomorrow. I said, okay. And I recorded it. So when I talk with the gallery about anything substantial, I have them on speakerphone and I record the conversation on my computer so that like I can go back and reference it. And that's exactly what I did with this. And so when they tried to say like, you know, we never said that we were responsible. I'm like, no, actually, you are. I have you on the phone call saying, like, I didn't realize we did that. You know, so there's a bunch of things that artists can do that are real simple. You know, it's like one additional step, but it's simple things that you can do just to kind of protect yourself. Because 
with the contracts, it's not going to stop someone from screwing you, but it is going to strengthen your resolve and make you not doubt whether or not you need to go after them. Because I think that there's a lot of gaslighting that happens with galleries or any business. I can't even single out galleries. When you're dealing with someone, there's a lot of gaslighting where they're like, oh, no, I didn't say that. Oh, no, you misunderstood and shit like that. And you go, maybe I did misunderstand. I don't know. It's a long time ago. Maybe I just forgot. But having a video, having an email, having a contract, you can look at it and you go, no, this is exactly what was said. And right. for me, like, that gives me the strength to push forward and go like, no, I got it. I'm going to need my money by Monday. Well, and, and this is just an idea that's coming to my mind now. And I don't know, you know if it has any merit or not, but it strikes me that if an artist is sending a piece of art to a gallery, perhaps you might also want to take photos of it in the state that you sent it, right? So, you know, here, oh, here no, is the painting, not, not here's the scope. No, no, What's not that? even that. I, not even that. I video myself. So well, I video. Was, Perfect. Yep. The reason this came about is I actually have a friend. She received work back from San Francisco Gallery and she unboxed it and she was like, there's only four pieces here. I sent you five. And they're like, no, like you must have misplaced it. Someone could have come into your studio and stole it, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, oh, wait, I have studio cameras. And she went back and reviewed and it shows her pulling out four individual pieces of work and not a fifth one. And she sent it to them and they go, all right, we'll make an insurance claim. And it was a real cut and simple yeah. conversation ever since then. So, for example, with the work that was damaged from Station 16, the letter from their lawyer says any damage that happened happened in transit and we suggest you contact the shipping company. Well, I have a video of me unboxing the crate. I set up a camera. I have me unscrewing the box, pulling everything out, showing that there's nothing broken, nothing damaged, nothing, anything else. So I have that. So if, if our lawsuit goes to court, it's an indisputable way of showing that, no, it didn't happen in transit. And I'm not going to contact the shipping company. I'm contacting the people that damaged it, which is Station 16. And I mean, you know, it's only paranoid if there's not a reason for it, right? So like... Well, it, yeah. So I record everything. I video everything. Because you know what? Why not? I mean, get a fucking eight terabyte drive and just throw that shit on it. And if you need yeah. it in six years, you got it. If not, then, yeah. you know, you got a bunch of weird memories. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There might be an art project in that somehow, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but in your particular case, I mean, the damage in question is gaff tape on the paper. Like the yeah. shipping company is going to put yeah, gaff what, tape on the paper. How ridiculous is that? that yeah. That's why it was so absurd. And like the two pieces that had the indent on them, they were in a sleeve with a, a foam core backing. And it's like only the paper was damaged, not the plastic, not the foam core. So it's like the odds of them having identical marks and somehow like <laughs> right. missing the, the foam core. But they just don't give a shit. I mean, that's the thing. It's like you can't have a conversation with someone that doesn't want to talk to you. They just didn't give a shit. They were saying whatever they thought they needed to say to make me go away. And, you know, I mean, I don't know who their lawyer is, but I do know that when they originally sent me back the response, it had misspellings in it. I'm like, man, when you're paying for an attorney that can't even spell shit, something's up. In, in the letter, it said, we're going to fight any and all claims. And it, it was spelled out, Andy and all. Mm -hmm. And so because one of my attorneys is named Andrew, 
He was like, I fucking hate when people call me Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Logan, though, in their defense, in their defense, though, and I don't mean to defend them, but I'm just saying that, you know, as French Canadians, English isn't their first language. So I'm just, you know, like maybe there's a... um, (laughs) Totally. There. <laughs> totally, but when you're paying for it, you're paying for words. Yes, that's why yes, you get yes. someone else to proof it. That's right. That's right. Well, Logan, again, I mean, you mentioned this earlier, and and it's also one of the reasons why I respect you so much because you are actually, as I've said in the past, you're one of the nicest people in the game. From the day I met you, you're always just so friendly and nice and positive. And you're right. I mean, in spite and of handsome. your rough exterior handsome. and handsome and handsome, exactly. you sexy beast. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so yes, optimism, positivity, glass half full. We've spent 20 minutes or so here talking about this current art world horror story that you're going through with this bad gallery, right? But let's spend a few minutes just shouting out to the good galleries that you have worked with because here on the podcast, we try to err on the side of positivity and optimism as well. And so let's talk a little bit about what artists should look for in a good gallery. What what attributes do yeah. good galleries personify? You know, it's funny. I'm, I was actually just before I called you, I was actually working on a post that I'm going to do basically with that exact thing. I mean, I hate being the guy that bitches. Like I said, I'm an internal optimist. I don't like to focus on the negativity. So what I've been trying to do is to focus on the positive. And, and the way I kind of balance that is like giving artists that, that are coming up behind me, like advice or clues or suggestions on how they can avoid it. But then also like giving a shout out to the galleries that, that are good. I mean, the, the people that I've worked with over the years that I couldn't think of anything bad to say about Tagliatella Gallery, love those guys. Never had an issue with them that we couldn't solve. I mean, we had one or two little things where I mentioned something, it was fixed immediately and it was done. And all with a smile and a handshake and, and no weirdness. I've just started recently working with Mazelle Gallery, which is in Brussels. Same thing. I mean, email them, say, what about this? They email back. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we don't. But everything's on the up and up and we just keep it moving. And then the first time I ever worked with someone and I thought to myself, this is how I want to be treated, is when I worked with the Goldmans down at uh, Wynwood Walls. I worked for Tony Goldman and I did a mural back in 2010. He was like, whatever you need. Anytime I mentioned, like, oh, I wish I had this, you know, I'll get it for you. And they took care of me. It's the way it should be. And ever since then, I was like, you know, that's hard. It should be treated like with respect, with an understanding, with like this acknowledgement that this is a partnership and I have something that you don't have and you have something that I don't have. And we're merging forces to make ourselves stronger. Also, a uh, Thanks Space Gallery there in LA. I mean, although I don't show with them, you know, I really appreciate the way Andrew is direct with everything. I actually shared a space with them for a while before I moved to New York. You know, he's someone that I've always appreciated. He's an extremely aggressive person in terms of promoting the art that he shows and getting his artists out there and selling and everything else. So he's another one that that I really appreciate. But, you know, I started trying to make a list of what's a a quote unquote good gallery and a bad gallery. And there's a few warning signs now that I won't say that I drop them immediately, but I certainly take notice. Like, when a gallery doesn't respond back to you, you know, I'd say like if you're working with them and you email them and a week goes by and you don't hear from them, that's an issue. If it's something urgent and a couple of days go by, that's an issue. If there's always an issue with payment and every bad gallery that I've worked with, this has been a thing. Oh, we don't have your address. Oh, we need your social. Oh, the transfer didn't go through. Oh, you know, we're going to get, you know, we'll have this go out next week. Like the galleries that I work with now, 
there has never once been an issue with payment. Not one. They go, hey, we sold this. They sent it over. Check cleared. All good. And so anytime that there's an ongoing issue for payments, that's a big warning flag for me. I'm trying to think what else, what else did I come up with? If a gallery only wants you to, to produce the same thing over and over again, and they don't encourage you to grow, then it's more like a factory than it is a gallery. I, mean, I think a gallery should be interested in your career just as much as your artwork. And that means not just selling the artwork that's on the wall, but it means trying to get you press, trying to get you projects, trying to get you into collections that are important or museums or things that will further you and kind of up your stock in the art world. And I think that when you're starting off, I mean, shit, when I, when I had my first show, it was in like a coffee shop and I was over the moon that I had stuff in a coffee shop and it was awesome. But as you kind of grow, it's like, well, then you want to be in a real gallery and then you want to sell work. Then you want to make a living off of the work. And after you get to the point where you're making a living off of your artwork, then you need to start focusing on like the big prize. And that's getting in museums, getting press, getting in collections and finding stability, finding collectors that aren't going to turn around and sell your shit the second that, you know, it's worth a dollar more than they bought it for. So, yeah, that's my whole spiel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the things that sort of jumps out at me about what you just said is that the bar isn't that high. You know what I mean? mean, Like, you know, good communication, paying on time, being human, being respectful, having some integrity. Like, this should be pretty basic stuff. Sell it to them. Pay me for it. Talk to me about it. That's it. You know? (laughs) Exactly. That's that's a good infographic. Like, the secret to art gallery success. You know, like, like, that's it. Yeah. And yeah, like with Tackley Tell, I mean, I'll talk to him, hey, I got this idea. What about doing this thing? What about doing that thing? And they'll be like, yeah, you know, that's not really what our collectors are looking for. But, you know, what about something like this? And I think that one of the things that artists need to remember is that art is anything that you create in your studio. The second your artwork leaves the studio door, it then enters the business world. And so there's not really room for emotion. You need to be strategic. You need to be focused. You need to be precise. And you need to be persistent. And so there's no like what I feel or this or that, you know, like in the studio, you can do all that stuff. In the studio, you can make as much work as you want. No one's telling you what to make, what you choose to show, how you curate the work that goes on the wall. That's where it starts entering into business. And so instead of artists thinking of like, this gallery takes care of me, you need to think of it as I'm entering into a partnership with a gallery and together we're going to build something. They have the walls. I have the art. Let's make this happen. Right. Right. And you need to realize that no one owes you anything, you know, other than the check for the work that clears. Yeah. Yeah. No, you've hit on so many important things. I mean, as soon as an artist decides to make a living with their work and they want to support themselves with their work, then they have made the decision to be in business. And You don't have to reinvent the wheel. I mean, you don't even have to guess at it. There's all kinds of good books. <laughs> There's all yeah. kinds of good tutorials. All, you know, if you don't know business, you can learn it. But that's the game that you've decided to play in. Yeah. And I mean, and just talk to other artists. I mean, that, yeah. I mean, in, in hindsight, that, that was the mistake that I made with Station 16. I didn't talk to 123 Clan. When I saw that post, I should have messaged them directly and been like, what happened? 
and gotten it from them. Then it would have right. been, been informed, you know, straight from the. We need a, you know what, Logan? We need a Yelp for galleries. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like you know, if artists could could comment and rate galleries based on their experience, then you would you would be able to know. You know, as long as you had trustworthy artists. I mean, the fact is, yeah, there's well, a lot there's a lot too, of shady right? galleries, but there are an equal number of shady, terrible <laughs> artists. It is true. I mean, it is true. So you're a busy guy. I want to be respectful of your time. I'm so grateful that we were able to do this. Uh, I mean, it's uh, going on nine o'clock New York time. I'm out here in Cali on the left coast and you're on the on the east coast, which, by the way, you're not swimming, are you? How the hell are you doing with the water and the flooding? No, I, I lost a lot of stuff in my uh, my storage unit, but nothing that was important. It was pissing down like crazy. I mean, it was coming up on the fire hydrant and I it's like, you know, of course, anytime there's a weird weather incident, I'm like, this is a great time to take pictures. So I opened my window <laughs> yes, and was shooting with like a telephoto lens because there was like delivery drivers that were still delivering food in the monsoon. Right. I was like, oh, wait, I forgot. It's flooded in the basement before. And so I went down there and I managed to get everything out because I had a good portion of my art collection there. And, you know, I had about probably about 60 or 70 Shepherd Fairy prints from like the mid 90s. And uh, I opened my, my storage locker right at the same time water started dripping out of the ceiling. So I made a sprint up two flights of stairs with crates. And uh, so, I mean, oh you, know, you can't see it behind me, like all, all these trash bags and crates or all the art that was in the storage unit. So I'm going to find a new storage unit. Man, oh man. Well, thank the art gods for looking out for you on that one that you were able to save yeah. that work. Man. Yeah, but I mean, I, I escaped relatively unscathed. I mean, the, there's a good, lot of people good. that took serious damage. I mean, I was yeah. reading about the, a lot of these uh, illegally converted basement apartments. You know, 12 people died because yeah, they couldn't get it's, out. It's horrific, absolutely horrific. And our hearts go out to them. And so, yeah, so I definitely wanted to. Shout out to you about that. Make sure that you knew that we were thinking about you and make sure you're safe in that yeah, regard. I mean, climate change is real and these are yeah, right. examples it's of, gonna be the of, first of how many. real it is. It won't be the end of it. I'm sure uh, there'll be more and more of these storms. All right, Logan Hicks, you started by talking to us about two horror stories. We've just covered the second one. God bless you. Good luck, brother. But the first one you talked about our restaurant tour, the uh, Steak Mogul restaurateur who apparently thinks if he pays you once for your artwork, he can then use it a hundred times across a hundred different media or channels or platforms. What's the status with this story? What can we do in the future to avoid this kind of nightmare? This is a more complicated one simply because like, we did everything right. We had a contract with big, huge paragraphs and passages and big fancy words and everything else saying that they couldn't use it for this, that, and the other thing. And they still did. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier. If someone wants to fuck you, they're going to fuck you. So the first defense line is having a contract and a firm understanding. The second defense line is having a good attorney. And I'm lucky in the fact that like KG Law, like I've been working with them for a number of years. They've represented me on a number of different copyright infringement cases. So I, I called up Andrew and Ilya on, on this and let them do what they're best at. And so primarily it's been lawyers going back and forth. And what lawyers will normally do is if you make a claim against them, they know that every time you have to talk to your lawyer, you got to pay your lawyer. And so they'll try to keep the communication going as long as possible because your lawyer is going to bill by the hour. So if your lawyer spends five minutes writing an email to them, well, they're going to charge you the whatever, 150, 250, 350 an hour. 
they usually assume their artists will go away after a while. With this, I mean, it's not finished by any stretch, but it couldn't be more clear that we're absolutely in the right. It's just a question of how many hoops we need to jump through before we actually get compensated on a level that is equal to the infringement that they had. And so last I heard, the lawyers are still kind of going back and forth and talking about numbers or whatever else, but I, I really don't know anything beyond that. So I would say to answer your question, what we can do about it, if you're an artist, make sure you find a good attorney and find one before you need one. At this point, there's been enough. I don't know, I think if you're an artist, you can't just be content with just making the artwork. You need to be in love with making the artwork, presenting the artwork, selling the artwork, and everything that comes along with that. And that includes protecting the artwork. And so if you see like an article on a paper about some lawsuit with some infringement or whatever else, see who the attorney is. If it doesn't say, call up the artist, ask who the attorney is. You may not ever need it, but keep a list of resources. Keep a list of accountants, keep a list of attorneys, keep a list of frame makers, of delivery services. These are all things that, it's all the small things that really get you over the finish line. Because I mean, any asshole with a canvas and a tube of paint can paint something, but at that point, it's a hobby. If you want to make it into a business, you need all the other stuff like the attorneys and accountants to really get you over the finish line. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, right? Because on a certain level, I mean, if artists really care about their artwork, the analogy that comes to mind is the parental kind of analogy where parents have kids, they care for their kids, they raise their kids, they protect their kids. If they're a good parent, like this is what you do, right? Because these are your babies. If an artist makes art, that's your baby, right? You be a responsible artist, be a responsible parent of that artwork of that baby that you've made, raise it up, protect it, make sure you're managing it and, and looking after it in a way that makes sure that it doesn't get hurt or destroyed or that you don't get hurt or destroyed in the process. And it's an interesting situation because you hit on it earlier. I mean, a lot of times artists just they want to make the work, but they don't want to think about all of the responsibility that comes after the work is done. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think a simpler analogy is it's like having a dog. Dogs are fun and they're awesome, but sometimes you got to clean up some shit. That's what the lawyer's for. You know, and, and the reason I kind of wised up to some of this is a very good friend of mine and a mentor, an artist named Mia Ando. One time I had a gallery that did a few things that I wasn't happy with. And I was complaining to her about like, well, I thought we were friends and this and that. And jokingly, she was like, I'm getting annoyed. She goes, look, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you a contract tomorrow. After I send you that contract, we're never going to have a conversation like this again. And the reason we're not going to have this conversation again is because you're never going to let a piece of artwork leave your studio unless you have a signed consignment form so that there's a firm understanding and no misunderstandings between you and the gallery. Because everything you've told me could have been solved with a consignment form, a simple one-page consignment form. And I was like, you're right. And so our motto kind of became like, no more unpleasant conversations. And truth is, I don't see her that often. And we had wasted half of the time I saw her, me complaining about something that was my own stupid fault for not having a tight business practice. And so now that's what I do. I try to think ahead. Yeah. And, you know, and it cuts both ways, too, because, yes, of course, artists have to accept responsibility for their business and their arts business and managing their art, you know, in a professional, legally responsible way. But of course, that's on the supply side, right? I mean, on the demand side, clients, collectors, patrons, what have you. I mean, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding, a lot of ignorance. And I can't speak to necessarily this particular situation with this uh, steak mogul 
that you're talking about. But I have heard stories in the past where, you know, people feel like, well, I bought the artwork, so I own the rights and I can make T-shirts and I can make packaging and I can do this and I can do that. And no, you can't. <laughs> you know what I mean? That, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, you know, in the past, I think people that are fucking up want to throw out those excuses and they know. I mean, look, if you're a business, if you don't know, it's your job to know. You know what I mean? It's like, so I used to try to educate people like, no, actually, here's what a copyright is. And here's what it's, and you know what? That's not my fucking job. My job is to make the art. I'll send you a link and you can read about that shit yourself. But it's not my job to try to convince you. Only one I need to convince is the court. And so if you are a professional and you take your career serious, it is your job to know these things. And if you don't know, you ask questions or you hire someone that does know. And so, you know, well, I, I thought like, well, you thought wrong. You can think whatever you want, but you thought wrong. Also, like a, a quick side note that I'll say to any artists that are painting murals, copyright your murals. So one of the many things that Ilya ha- has kind of clued me in on is when you're an artist, if you paint a mural, yes, you have the copyright on that mural. And if some big brand comes and does a photo shoot in front of your mural, you can sue them, but you would be getting the same amount as you would get if you licensed your mural. Which, you know, somewhere between 1500 3500 I mean, it's a pretty standard kind of fee for that. But if you copyright your mural and you register it with the copyright office, which only costs $35, your damages start at $30,000. So $1,500 versus $30,000 is a huge difference. And if they exclude your signature on the photo shoot, that's additional damages on top of it. And so that's kind of what I mean about having a tight business practice. Like, Painting the mural is the first step. Registering that shit, getting good documentation and presenting it to the world is the second step. Well, and I think Ilya, who, you know, shout out Ilya. I mean, what an awesome dude he is. I mean, I've had the opportunity to chat with him in the past and he honored us with his presence at our conference a couple of years ago. And I mean, one of the things that he talked about was making the copyright part of your art practice. So you've made the art. Right. You've finished the piece. Well, then creating the copyright, registering the artwork, you know, in the copyright office should be part of your arts practice, because then that gives you the legal coverage that you need in these situations. Yeah, I try to have a workflow for everything that I do. I mean, the same way that if you're making work for a gallery, you finish the work, then you package the work, then you create the work, then you deliver, you know, like you don't really think about it. There's a workflow that goes to it. And so when you start assigning that same kind of methodology to doing a mural, and you know what you need to do, like, all right, well, I'm done with the mural. Now copyright it and do this, that, and the other thing. And it just saves you, you know, again, no more unpleasant conversations. You don't need to then chase someone down. You can go, here's the copyright on it. You owe me money. Either let's talk about what you owe me, or I can just lawyer up and we can deal with it that way. But either way, I need my money. Well, nobody likes to find themselves in, a, in the middle of a horror movie. Nobody likes to find themselves in the middle of a scary life-threatening, white-knuckled, heart-racing situation. And artists don't necessarily have to find themselves in the middle of an art world horror story. If they can listen to what we're talking about, if they can use their brain, if they can mitigate some of these issues with best business practices by finding lawyers before they need them, by registering their copyright, by using their brains and, and getting consignment agreements and communicating with galleries, avoiding the bad galleries, doing some research, talking to artists making sure that they're setting themselves up for success so they can mitigate the dangers that the art world might bring them and not find themselves in the middle of an art world horror story. And I'll tell you what, Logan Hicks, I'm so grateful, man, for you taking time 
today to share your art world horror stories with us so that young artists and old artists listening today can avoid these problems in their own practice. Thank you, my friend, for being with us today. Thank you much. Learn from my mistakes. And one last thing I'll say to the artists that, that are listening. I mean, recognize that you're part of a community. Even if you're that same introvert like me who spends 90% of his time in the studio, we're all part of the same community. No artist wants to see another artist get screwed over and no artist wants to see bad galleries get ahead. So talk to each other. Got a question? Ask someone. The saying, uh, rising tide floats all boats applies to careers too. And so if I do better, that means that I should make sure that you do better also. And so uh, we're all part of the same community and we all have the same goals. So utilize it. That's a great way of ending this, Logan Hicks. You are a source of positivity and optimism and a sexy animal at that. Thank you, my friend. (laughs) Thank you much for having me. I appreciate it, Scott. Our darkness falls as chills abound Just when you felt all safe and sound His heart is losing their bloody minds As their hard work turns on evil eyes Tis worse than nightmares, tis worse than fears As artists cry horrific tears Welcome to Art World Horror Stories (laughs) Thanks for listening to Art World Horror Stories Please make sure to like this episode, write a review, and share it with your friends on social. Also, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes. Art World Horror Stories is produced by Crew West Studios in Los Angeles. Art World Horror Stories is edited by We Edit Podcast and hosted by Captivate. Our intro music was created by Dan Ubik and his team at Dan U Productions in Los Angeles. Our World Horror Stories will be back soon with another scary episode of real-life stories about the dangers of working in the arts.